Christian parents who genuinely love their children long for our kids to know our will. We want our kids to know what we want, to put it simply. Why? I trust because we believe that what we want for our kids is what is best for them. We want for them nothing but what will bring them true joy and lasting success. And so we zealously teach them day after day what we want, our will. Now we obviously fall short. We make mistakes. Sometimes our wants, our will is simple selfishness. But it's really no different with our Heavenly Father. Obviously cleaned up of all sin and self-promotion, God wants the very same thing of us. He wants to communicate His will to us because He loves us. He longs for His children to know what He wants, what He wills for them to do, what He wills for them to become. Because what He wants for you is what is best for you. What He wants for you is what leads to your lasting joy. What He wants for you leads to your eternal success. We have two problems that are assumed. The first problem is that we need to mature in our understanding of what our Father wants. That is, we deal with ignorance. We deal with spiritual dullness. Our second problem is that we have need to mature in our obedience to what we know God wants of us. We deal with moral weakness and sinful passion. And so here is our life purpose laid out before us. The orientation of our life as God's children. It is that we would grow in our knowledge of what God wants. That we would grow in our knowledge of His will for us and that we would learn to live our lives in a manner that is worthy of His desires for our heart. Now this may all seem fairly obvious to us who have considered the Word of God for any length of time. But it is spiritually healthy. It is encouraging for us to be reminded of our calling and to keep before our eyes what this life is to look like. This life that longs to know the will of God and this life that longs to live in light of that knowledge. And for light on this point, we turn to Paul's letter to the Colossians where he addresses these very notions. In Colossians, we come to a book where Paul writes, uh, being in prison, chapter 4 brings this out in three different places. He's at an undisclosed location, probably Rome, possibly Ephesus. It's difficult to know for sure. But Epaphras, Paul's partner in ministry, travels from the city of Colossae to visit Paul in prison and to report that souls in Colossae have responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so it's with great joy that Paul dispatches Tychicus and Onesimus to carry this letter back to the Colossian church. Chapter 4, verses 7 through 9. So put yourself in Paul's position here. This is a difficult time. You're in prison. But he sent Epaphras out. This church has been formed. And Paul is highly encouraged and takes on these new believers as another point of interest in his many ministrations of the gospel. And he addresses these believers in the faith. 
and he warns them against false doctrine, which is rampant in their area. Paul argues particularly against teachings that call into question the full deity of Christ. He is saying as believers in Jesus Christ, you must understand the person of Jesus. You must know who he is. His full deity, His sovereign authority. And what is so vital here in much of this book, His all-sufficiency to save and to transform the believer. Jesus Christ is Christianity. He is at the heart of all that you now are. He is your identity. You are united to Him. You have become one with Him and seated with Him in the heavenly realms. He is your Savior and the transforming power in your life. It's a high Christology that Paul delivers to us here, and it is a classic, succinct book that points us to the greatness and all-sufficiency of Christ and to a life that is centered on Jesus Paul begins the book by giving thanksgiving to God for finding the Colossians, for giving to them salvation, for rescuing them from their sin. We won't linger in these first eight verses, but just notice with me, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. He is now our Father. Our Father has a word to us as siblings in Christ, and I want to share that with you. Verse 3, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Paul just glows here with the gospel's power and with this brotherhood with Epaphras who was sent out from Paul to deliver the message and how God brought the light of the gospel to these people and they responded. Paul is thrilled to the core of his being. There's joy. There's a fire that's burning in this prison cell because the gospel is never imprisoned. And so he rejoices with thanksgiving to God for these believers. Epaphras likely evangelized the Colossians during the time that Paul was stationed nearby at Ephesus for those three years. It's very possible that Epaphras was one who was sent out from Ephesus and ministered there in this place. So Paul did not start this church, apparently never met these believers, yet he's overjoyed with the message of their knowledge of Christ. That says a lot in itself. He didn't start this he didn't get this going, but he rejoices at the work that has been done in spreading the gospel of Christ. Now think about it. You get that picture of what's going on with these new believers, and as he writes this message, think about this. How does Paul now pray for these new believers? What does he believe is vital for their spiritual growth and stability? He doesn't start by praying that they find a church building, you'll notice. 
He doesn't start by praying all sorts of things that we might think are necessary for the establishment of a new church. Through inspiration of the Spirit of God, how does Paul go to work on his knees for these people who have come to Christ? As he takes up their cause, as he longs for their growth, what does he say? How does he pray? The banner over his prayer, what he longs for them is this, that they would be filled with the full knowledge of God's will. This is what he wants. This is what he prays. Verse 9, And so from the day we heard, that is, we've heard of your salvation, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That phrase, to be filled with the knowledge of his will, is again the banner over this whole prayer. This is the center and the core of what Paul longs to see fulfilled in their lives, that they would know the will of their Father. There is an assumption here again, isn't there? As we said in the introduction, there's an assumption that there's ignorance here. Think of a young child that's born into a home. That's part of the whole process, isn't it, for that child to come to understand what mom and dad want. That child's not born fully able to speak and communicate. There's a learning of the language. And then there's a learning as that child matures, not only of the language of mom and dad, but of the heart of mom and dad. Coming to understand philosophies and thinking and ways and orientations of life. There's a process there. And so it is in the spiritual realm with one who comes to new birth in Christ. There is a process here of coming to understand what our Father wants. Speaking His language. Hearing His heart. Knowing what He wants of me for my good and for His glory. The second assumption here is that, and let's not take it for granted, God speaks. There is communication between the natural and supernatural realms. There is a word that comes to us from God. He's not always easy to understand, let's hasten to say. But He speaks His mind. He communicates. There's nothing uglier, well, there may be, but... One very ugly thing are parents who do not communicate with their children. A father who is cold and distant and does not care to speak his will and his ways to his children. God is not that kind of father. He fills us up with words, doesn't he? It's a large book. There's a lot to say. Our father is deep. And he speaks, and he speaks, and he speaks, and he tells us what he believes and what he longs for. He willingly, lovingly communicates with his people, revealing to them in his word his truth and his will. This knowledge of what God wants is more than a purely intellectual gathering of facts, as we notice here in verse 9 at the end of the verse. I want you to be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. All spiritual wisdom and understanding is a phrase that speaks of one's ability to skillfully apply God's truth to daily life. Spiritual wisdom is the ability to discern what God thinks about certain situations, about people, about philosophical claims, and to act appropriately in light of that wisdom. 
The assumption also is that we are not to look, then, for an existential zap. That we somehow come into the light of God's truth and know it all. But rather that it's something with which we are to be progressively filled up. That in our life as believers, we come to know more and more and more of what God thinks about us and our situations and the life that is around us. What He wants for us. We're progressively filled with that knowledge. And it's interesting, isn't it, here that what we're looking at is a prayer. Paul's word here to the Colossians is not simply a motivational speech, but it is a prayer to God. That's interesting. No one will ever gain a deep knowledge of God's will without lots of hard work. Think of Proverbs chapter 3. Dig for it as for silver and for gold. Search for it. It will be difficult to know the will of God. It will take work, not because He's hiding it from us, but because He's so deep. Like this little infant child seeking to understand what those words mean that mom and dad are speaking. It takes a lot of hard work and development and growth to know what our Father is saying. We're going to have to work at it. And what does that mean? How do I come to be filled up with the knowledge of God's will? What does it take? What is part of that work? Certainly it is, and clearly, an understanding of the Bible. In your private world, there needs to be a feeding on God's Word. Now some Christians in time past have not had a Bible. And so for them it was much more an issue of meditation. But we need to read God's Word and meditate upon it in our private lives to come to understand what our God intends, what His will is for us. It obviously involves also public reading of God's Word. I hope that you come on the Lord's Day and realize that this is a time in which you can deepen in your knowledge of God's will. We don't come by way of perfunctory ritual. To simply gather because that's what Christians do. We come to feed on the will and the mind of God. It comes in little pieces. Most of it comes by way of reminder on what we already know after a fair period of time in following the Lord. But may we always come with eager hearts and open ears to say, what does God want? What is His will that is a proper and healthy relationship between father and child? I think we secondly need to connect with other people. There is need within the assembly and within our families to edify one another, to spend time talking about the will of God and the things of God and to come to know them better. I learn from people in our assembly all the time what God wants. And may that be the case with us as we interact on the things of God that we're constantly teaching one another and helping one another to see the many faceted beauties of Christ's will for His church. It also involves not only hearing what other people have to say, but I think reading what other people have to say. Books can be tremendously helpful to us to give us a a beam toward God and to see Him in a light that we've not seen before. I think we then thirdly, and is so obvious here, is that we need prayer. I wonder in your own personal prayer life, How often, how enthusiastically do you plead with God to show you His will? 
I don't mean by that which car you should buy or which book you should choose uh, for school reading or something along those lines. Not that that's necessarily a bad prayer, but I mean to get the full sense of what God wants for you. God, do I see my life in light of your will? Do I really get it? Do you pray that God would show you what he wants? That's a scary thought sometimes. It would just be a lot easier, we think, that if we didn't really know what God wants. Because when God expresses his will, you find, it seems to me, that there's, a lot, there's an awful lot of adjustment that keeps having to take place. He does encourage us in our walk, but there's awful, so many times that we have to change. Do you pray in your private world that God would make his will known? That you'd really understand it? Secondly, this is a project that is to go on in our corporate intercession for one another. I quote from a book. I don't know the source and the author well, but these are profound words. In which he says, intercession is spiritual defiance of what is. Intercession is spiritual defiance of what is in the name of what God has promised. History belongs to the intercessors who believe the future into being. Now there's a way of reading that, the wrong way, but there's a way of reading that very profound statement well. Let me say it one more time. Intercession is spiritual defiance of what is in the name of what God has promised. History belongs to the intercessors who believe the future into being. Not creating our own future, but believing what God has promised will come true and praying it. Chapter 1 and verse 5 of this book, let's just hone in on that point. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. There's a hope that is laid up for the believer in heaven that will be realized. Verse 13, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. Chapter 3 and verse 1. 3 and 1, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. So let's put that back together with this comment about the future promises of God, the intercessory prayer of God's people brings into being the future. That is, we know that we have been completed in Christ. We are seated in the heavenly realms. We know fully the wisdom of God and are being transformed into the likeness of Christ. We need to join together to pray to that end for one another. And we can. We have great assurance and authority to do so because God's Word has, has said this is who we are in Jesus Christ. And so we pray for one another that we'd come to know the will of God. Little by little, faithfully praying, day after day for one another, 
to know the will of God and to live out who we are. So Paul pleads with God that the Colossians would be filled with a full knowledge of his will. That leads, verse 10, into this statement, so that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. That they would know the will of God so that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Verse 10, you see the phrase there, so as to walk. Here's the design of this knowledge. Here's the purpose of it. Here's the goal of it. As to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. When a believer gains full knowledge of God's will, the intended result is that he or she will live out that will in a manner that is worthy of Christ. This does not mean worthy in the sense of deserving God's favor, but it means worthy in the sense of living in sync with that will that God has for us. Living with integrity in light of who we are in Christ. We may say of a child that they are to walk worthy of the family name, something along those lines. That doesn't mean that they deserve or earn the right to be in the family. It means that they reflect who they are within that family. And so within God's family, we are to reflect who we are. We are to reflect His promises to us concerning the future, to reflect them today. Such a life, a life that pleases the Lord, is now described here in four participial phrases. There's four participles that we find that describe what this means to walk worthy. What does it look like? You notice there in verse 10, first of all, bearing fruit in every good work. That's point number one. Bearing fruit in every good work. This is what it's going to look like to get what your Father wants and to live it out with honor. You will be bearing fruit in every good work. It is for such a life that we are saved. In fact, let me say this carefully. It needs to be nuanced more than I can give it right now, but I want to say it pointedly. If you think that salvation is a ticket to heaven, you are not only wrong, you probably have a counterfeit ticket. God did not save us just to get us into heaven to escape His wrath. He saved us in order to transform us. And if there is no evidence of transformation in your life, there is no evidence that you think God's thoughts after Him, you may well have a counterfeit ticket. You're going to get to the gate and say, I got my way in. I know Jesus is the one who died in my place. I know that He rose from the dead, and I have prayed and asked you to save me. God doesn't save people who live like the devil just to get a free ride into heaven. There is a salvation that we receive at the hand of God that begins when we receive it. Ephesians chapter 2, let's remember this point. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. I'll read at verse 8 so that we see his point fully. We really need to go back to verse 1 to get the full point of this chapter. But we'll start at chapter 2 and verse 8. Remember this familiar truth. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
I don't think the idea here is that Jesus saved us to live good works and, and just is thinking, you go ahead and make the choice to decide whether you will or not. I've given you the ticket to heaven, verses 8 and 9. Verse 10 is optional. No. He gives us salvation for the purpose of transforming us into his likeness. Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. Notice this very same point here in Titus chapter 2 and verse 11. Titus 2 and verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That's Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Same idea. The grace of God. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. This zeal for good works is not going to start when you hand in your ticket and get into heaven. He has saved us to make us now progressively zealous people who desire what is good. That's why He saved us. He did save us to deliver us from His wrath to come, but He also saved to purify for Himself a peculiar people, a special people, who live out His will in this world. So back to Colossians 1. In word and action and thought, the believer who understands God's will desires to obey that will. This is our new orientation. There's to be a radical love for God. There's to be a radical love for one another. There is to be a passion to know what God wants and to live out that truth and thereby to rejoice in the salvation that we have been given and to have evidence of it every day of our lives as He transforms our desires. What does it mean to have a sense of the will of God? It means that you will bear fruit in every good work. This is a process. We stumble and fall but there should be a process of bearing fruit in every good work. Secondly, it means, a second phrase, increasing in the knowledge of God. Bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. Now that seems rather strange, doesn't it? A prayer to be filled with the knowledge of God so that we will be filled with the knowledge of God. It, it may be here that the knowledge of God is understanding what He wants so that we will be filled with an intimate relationship with God. That we will enjoy an intimacy with Him. That Perhaps that's the idea of the second knowledge of God. A knowledge that's not merely knowing what He desires, but rather a knowledge that grows in relationship to Him. In other words, the more we learn of, what our, of our Father's will, the better we come to know Him. It's possible to know a lot about what God wants and not to put it into practice, but as we know what He wants and put it into practice, we come to know Him better. We come to realize in our relationship with Him a depth that we did not know before. The third phrase, verse 11, is to be strengthened with power. Verse 11, may you be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Bearing fruit 
increasing in our intimacy with God and being strengthened with power from on high. That's a thrilling phrase. It's an exciting prospect. In all power, being made more powerful is the original reading. And of course, the source of this is God, according to His glorious might. This is God's power working in us. It is power that flows from His infinite supply and infuses us with spiritual vitality in the midst of trials and responsibilities. It is all sufficient power. We are not fully sufficient, but it is all sufficient power in us as we access it, as it operates within us. It is an operative power for which we should long. We should lust for it. We should crave it and desire it. That this power would work in us to lead us beyond ourselves in our smallness and to give us spiritual strength for the battle. It's a power source that equips us quite amazingly with two very profound ideas. We notice there in verse 11, for all endurance. And secondly, patience For all endurance, that is to hold up under the trials and pressures of life, and with all patience, that is to put up with all the pressures and trials of life. To hold up under the trials and pressures, that is the ability to see things through without giving up. And patience is to see things through without exploding and blowing up. The ability to endure people without retaliating or lashing out at others Barclay defines it this way, this patience is the quality of mind and heart which enables a man so to bear with people that their unpleasantness and maliciousness and cruelty will never drive him to bitterness, and their unteachableness will never drive him to despair, and their unloveliness will never drive him to alter his love. The power of God working through us can help us to endure whatever God brings into our life and can enable us to be patient with any person that enters our life. And then fourthly, giving thanks. This spills out into a life of thanksgiving. Verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This really all hangs together under that idea of giving thanks. Giving thanks for our salvation will mark the life of the one who really understands the will of God. I have a home in the kingdom of light awaiting me. I've been rescued from the dominion of darkness. I've been redeemed from my sins and forgiven. This is to spill out into thanksgiving. Isn't it true that at those times when we are least in tune with the will of God, we are the least thankful? When we are confused about the will of God, when we are running from the will of God, when we don't really want to know what God thinks, we are always unthankful. Thanksgiving spills out of the heart of one who longs for the love of God or for the will of God and who is experiencing the joys of the forgiveness that we have in Jesus Christ. This passage, this prayer of Paul calls us to prayer. I wonder, is this... Christian, how you pray for your brothers and sisters in this church. 
Such prayer is a communal responsibility. Do we pray like this? Do we pray with longing that God's people would know God's will and walk worthy of Him in their daily lives? We need one another's prayers. We need laborers who pour out their hearts in prayer for one another. This is a call that I issue as a pastor to you in behalf of all of the church. Do we make this a priority in our lives to pray for one another's growth in the knowledge of God? And perhaps there would be some good strategizing that could take place for us to bring that simply out of our own personal world and to bring it here into this building to hold us to accountability. Are there those who would be willing to gather for prayer at other times than when we do and to beg God to give us the wisdom of His will? Are there times that we can pray with one another? Are there times that we can hold ourselves accountable to do so? Can we take the prayer lists that we gain on Wednesday night and take them home with us and pray for the wisdom of these people throughout the week? Or take a sheet that has all of the names of all of the people that attend our church and to go through that sheet systematically and regularly asking God to give us wisdom of His will, to see it, to get the point. Intercessory prayer is one of the key tools by which to contribute to the health of the body of Christ. Where is criticism of immaturity ever going to get a church? Nowhere. Where will gossip ever get us as we talk about one another's weaknesses? Mature believers know how to appeal to the Father in deep prayers for one another's growth. And it is these prayers that we need We need to pour them out for one another. There are times when it's right to confront an error in someone. In fact, there are times when it's God's clear will. But is the person we wish to confront a person for whom we are earnestly praying? And after addressing someone's immaturity, do we follow up with earnest prayers to God for their spiritual growth? Oh, how hollow would be my work as a father if after all of the corrections of one day with four kids in our home, I didn't end that day with prayers. That they would get not just my heart and my wisdom for them, but God's. And how empty would be my sermons and words of instruction and counsel to this assembly, if I did not back that up with words of prayer to God that you would grow. And where am I without your prayers for my knowledge of the will of God and living it out? We must come to God and bring into being the future that He's promised to pray it into being, not as creators, but as those responding to the promise of God and interceding for one another. There are times when this is difficult, but largely our problem is self-centeredness. We don't think enough about one another to pray that we would get the will of God and carry it out. May God rebuke us. May He change us. May we do something more than simply be convicted. But may we act 
and begin to pray more effectively and earnestly. Talk about it with others. Contemplate it today. Ask if you'd like help and direction. We can print pages and things out for you. But what's really got to happen is the motivation must be there that we would build one another up with our prayers. I've hit on this. I want to go just briefly to it one more time, and that is that I think this passage calls us to structured growth. There has to be structured growth in our lives. That is, uh, what is your plan to grow in your knowledge of God's will? Don't let this just happen by osmosis. Don't just fall in with others and kind of be part of the growth of a, of a church. But know purposefully that your participation in this assembly is part of the process of learning the will of God. Not that every word that is spoken is accurate. Not that there's never a mistake made on the with the interpretation of Scripture. But this is a place where we feed on the Word of God, where we consider it, we are, where we are exhorted to follow it. Know that your relationship with your church is a place where you grow in the things of God. And know that there must be structure in your life to read God's Word, to study and to know what His will is. A desperately disappointed would a parent be to see an adult son or daughter come and say, well, mom, dad, I don't need to talk to you anymore because I got the picture and walk away and never talk to that mom or dad again. But I fear sometimes we do that with God. I've read the Bible through. I know what God's saying. I know His will. And so we quit talking to Him. How foolish is that? In our private world, we need to come to understand more and more of the will of God, and we know how stupid that really is, to think we've got it all figured out and can take a break now. We need a feeding on His Word day after day after day because He's so much deeper than we are. Parents, are you leading your families in that direction? Fathers particularly, are you charting the course? Are your children learning the passions of God's heart for them? Are we as a church pointing the next generation together as a community to consider the will of God, to know what it is? Are you really getting the point? Is, are our families getting the point? Thirdly, the worthy walk. And I ask this question as we close. Do you, do you love the kingdom of Christ into which you have been transferred? Do you really love it? Are you comfortable in it? Not in the sense of being sinless, but do you say, that's where I want to be. This is my home. This is my world. The evidence that you've been transferred into the kingdom of God is that you'll be bearing fruit in every good work. That you'll be increasing in your intimacy with God. That you'll be strengthened with spiritual power to endure and to be patient. That you'll be giving thanks for your salvation. That there will be a joy that wells up within you every day of your life that spills out in the assembly on the Lord's day as we lift up songs of praise and thanksgiving to Him. Does this mark your life? Consider this parable just for a few moments. In the middle of the night, 
a filthy slum in the third world country. In a dilapidated shack, a young woman gives birth to a baby girl. Every indication is that it would have been better had this girl never seen the light of day. Her unmarried mother is a crazed drug addict who has no love for her daughter and sees her simply as a tool to get her way. Her father is an angry alcoholic who visits the home only to abuse the girl's mother and to beat his daughter, whom he refuses to admit is his own. This poor little girl grows up knowing nothing but a life of abuse and fear, of hunger and rejection, of crime and abject poverty. By the age of seven, she has never been given a bath. No one has ever spoken a kind word to her. She has never received so much as a hug from any human being. And she has become, in her own right, a thief and a liar and a manipulator who simply lives for herself. One day she comes home to find that her mother has abandoned the shack, has run off with another man, and has no more time for her seven-year-old daughter. The girl cowers in a corner of the shack, wondering what will happen to her next when her drunken father comes home, finds the situation, and his daughter alone and in a rage beats her unconscious. He drags her away and leaves her wallowing in her blood outside a filthy bar, which he enters for more drink and after which he plans to kill his girl and dispose her worthless body. While he drinks, a man discovers this young girl and takes her to a hospital. And there she she remains in a coma for several days when a foreign dignitary visits the hospital on a goodwill tour, learns of her condition, and brings her home in her unconscious state and places her in his house. She wakes up slowly. Her eyes focus on a world she could never dream was real. She looks around and sees the beauty and the splendor of this dignitary's home and the bedroom in which she lays and is in a bed, the softness of which she cannot even put into words. She is clean. All is fresh. There is sunlight coming in a window she didn't know could exist. And as she focuses her eyes, there is surrounding her a nurse and a father. A new father. And they are speaking a language she can't understand. And in this new world, this girl then must begin to learn what it means to be loved. She has to begin to understand the cleanliness and beauty of the world that she now inhabits. And she has to come to learn the new language of her father. But as she comes to understand her story and what has happened to her, she realizes, indeed, she's not in heaven. But this is her new family. Imagine in the heart of this girl, through time, how much she will love her father and how she will long to come to understand his language so that she can understand what he's teaching her about this strange world and how it works. 
And then as she matures to come to understand his heart. And what it was in him that ever possessed him to pick her up and take her home. Christian, we are obviously that little girl. We have come into a new family with a new language, with new privileges and a future that is beyond our imagination. And it should be our earnest passion and desire to know what our Father wants. Not only so we can negotiate the Christian life and fix problems, but that we might learn what ever possessed Him to choose us. That we might come to learn His heart. To know of its love and its holiness and its greatness and its goodness. To learn to speak His language. And how we should be rebuked in such a situation to not really want to know what our Father wants. He has demonstrated in the cross of Jesus Christ a victory in our behalf that demonstrates love that we will never fully comprehend. He loves us with an infinite love and has reached down, as it says here in this 13th verse, into the domain of darkness and has translated us into the kingdom of His Son to become fellow heirs with Christ, robed in His righteousness, why would we not want to know what that Father wants of us? May we go from here and plead with Him to show us. And may we go from here and long to know the depths of His heart and to love Him and to serve Him and to walk worthy of His calling. Let's bow for prayer. Father, I pray that you would search our hearts, that you'd rebuke us in our sin and unworthiness of the calling that you've placed on our lives as your people. We fall short. We lack interest in what you want. Father, we know it's sin. And I pray that you would build us up, that we would bear fruit in every good deed. That you would build us up, Father, to grow in our intimacy with you, to be strengthened with this divine power, to stand up in this world and to endure one another and the trials of life, I pray, Father God, that we would ever be giving thanks to you for the salvation that we have in Christ. God, we need your grace. We need to change. And I pray that you would move in our hearts and our souls to consider your calling upon our lives. For those who know you not as Savior, I pray, God, that they'd see themselves. Like that little girl 
and in their spiritually comatose state, that they would cry out in their soul for you to waken them from the dead and to take them into your kingdom. Lord, may we know it's not merely knowing the facts of the gospel, but it is embracing it in a saving way as the Spirit of God transforms us. And I pray for any that are not in the faith, maybe even some that think they have a ticket to heaven because they know things or have done some performance. I pray, God, that we'd understand this is a work that you must do, a gift that you must give, and I pray that we'd cry out for it any who are not truly in the faith would embrace it today and now receive Christ crucified in their behalf and risen. I ask God that by your mercies we would come from here with a passion and a fire in our gut to walk worthy of your calling and to do your will. May we balance it by the wisdom of others May we seek it out in the pages of Scripture. And may we give ourselves to live as children of the kingdom of light. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen.